me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to pick up our text in verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at, uh, at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Father, thank you for your word. Bless it now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, um, we started having the kids read some of the scripture for a long time ago now. Uh, so long ago that Stella was small enough she had to have the step stool in order to reach the mic. And now she's towering over it when she steps up there and uh, struggling a little bit, you know, to read through one verse or such, but I could have given her my whole text this morning easy enough. And it just blessed my heart to see these kids growing and growing up in the Lord and getting into God's word and doing these things, the church being their church, not just their parents' church. It'll get pretty soon where we'll just say the parents can stay home. We'll just take the kids, they'll be better. Just kidding, don't get any ideas. You guys are stuck here. And we've been going through First Thessalonians, and uh, you may have noticed I kind of got out of order here. Last week I taught the whole of chapter 3. And the problem was is because I'd studied chapter, the rest of chapter 2, and for some reason I thought I taught it. And so I jumped right into chapter 3, and uh, Danny was good enough to point out to me, hey, are you going to finish up chapter 2? And so I said, well, okay, I guess we better. Uh, just so that we have it completed. This is a great book, and we've been talking about the, the fact is, is that Paul had spent a very short period of time, uh, three Sabbaths, and whether or not that included a couple more weeks, a week before, or a week after the third Sabbath, we don't know. We just know it was a very short period of time. And in that period of time, Paul had laid out for them some extremely significant doctrines of the church, and he was forced out of the area. He had to leave. And, uh, and he was concerned about them. He was concerned about whether or not it really sunk into them, whether it gripped hold of their hearts, and that they could stand fast in the face of tribulation. You see, in this time in the history of the church, it wasn't a question of if you were going to be persecuted for your faith. It was when. Everybody was persecuted for their faith. It was one of those time periods where Christianity was an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. They were not recognized. So therefore, there was a constant opposition against them, both by the Roman Empire and also by the Jews and the Greeks and the Hellenists and all, all these people, they were against it. And so anytime the gospel was being presented, there was going to be opposition. And you see that's a characteristic of Paul's ministry. Everywhere he went, 
where he shared the gospel, there was two reactions. One, people embraced it. The other one, they fought against it. And we see that here with the Thessalonians on how they are being persecuted and Paul is concerned. And so having to leave there, being concerned about the church there, he sends Timothy back to them to find out how they're doing. And Timothy has come back to Paul, made his report, and now Paul is responding to the different things that are going on there. And, and Paul is extremely encouraged by the fact that in spite of the extreme persecution that they're facing, that they're able to stand in the faith. It took well. And here in verse 13, Paul really gives us the reason why they're able to stand and why it stuck so well within their hearts and their lives. And that's where he says to, here, to us here, he says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Three things that are here just in this one verse that we're going to take a look at, and we will get to the end of the chapter. Don't worry. I promise you, I won't get bogged down too bad. Okay, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. The first thing we see here is that they heard. And the second thing is, is that they welcomed it. And the third thing is, is that it changed their lives. So in other words, when they heard the word of God, it went into the depths of their mind and their psyche to where they, they said, yes, this is truth. And then as that truth came to light, then they embraced it for themselves. And the natural thing that takes place when we hear the word of God, we allow it into our hearts and we allow it to really be embraced by us, it will affect our life for change. You know, this is why it's so important that we are in the scriptures all the time. That it's not, you're not just in the scripture on Sunday morning when you come here to church but that it's a part of your life each and every day. You see, they received that word and the word therefore received, it means to take near with or to, one, uh, to oneself or to receive to oneself. And that means to, to take it in. And the, the word of God reverse, refers to the gospel that was presented to them. And they welcomed that word, which means they readily received information and to regard it as true and to receive readily and to accept and to believe. So it was having an impact on their life. And the testimony had come back to Paul that, that in spite of the persecution that they were going through, that they were able to stand strong. They did not receive it as a word of men, he says, but they received it as the word of God. Now, in Berea, when Paul went there and he shared the word of God, it says that what they did is they opened up the scriptures and they checked him out to see if what he said was true. That's what's called being a good Berean. You know, for us today, it means that we check what is being told us by teachers as to whether or not it's true by what the word says, not by what the pastor says, 
But it is as long as what he's saying is true according to the word. So I hope you get my point there. Check me out. Don't, don't just take what I say for granted. Look and see if what I'm saying is true. And if it's not, tell me, tell the elders, kick me out, do whatever you gotta do. But if it's true, then listen to it and apply it into your life, in your heart. Because that's what God's desire is for all of us. We should never, we must never treat the Bible as any other book. For the Bible is different in origin, character, content, and cost. The Bible is the word of God, and it was inspired by the Spirit of God according to 2 Timothy 3.16, and written by men of God who were used by the Spirit according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. God's word is holy, pure, and perfect according to Psalm 19, verses 7 and 9, through 9, I'm sorry. And the Bible was written at great cost not only to the writers, but to Jesus Christ who became man that the word of God might be given to us. So we shouldn't ever look at the Bible as just some book. It should have a measure of respect in our heart. You know, it, it's interesting because uh, with the advent of electronics to where a good percentage of us use electronic versions of the scriptures in order to study and to read and you know every, when I do my devotions it's with my iPad you know uh, when I study in my office it's with my computer you know I mean so there, there's all these things that we use that I kind of feel sometimes takes away from a respect from the book which is so important there, is a, there was a time when the book itself was reverenced amongst God's people to the degree that, that there were those that said it was a sin to write in it. So to write your notes down when God is ministering to you, to them that was a sin. You shouldn't do that. That desecrated the book, the holy book, the holy Bible. Now I don't, I'm not holding to that. I don't believe that's true. I believe that the book is something that's personal. And uh, that's one of the things I miss by not using my Bible is that being able to write in my book the things that God is speaking to me. In my Bible, I have certain places where God spoke to me particularly and I, I underlined them, I highlighted them and put notes in the margin of what that event was. And for me personally, it was, it was my calling uh, to be a pastor. Uh, it was also my calling to go from Southern California up here to Northern California. You know, there were various times and various ways that God speaks to me in his word and taking that note and putting it in there is important. And as a matter of fact, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but I started doing my, the reading of my text from my Bible uh, to encourage you to make sure and use your Bibles as well. And it's very important to us. When we take in the word of God into our hearts, it will affect our lives for change. God's word is inherent power, the power to change a life and the power to reach a soul. So when we read it, it's gonna have an effect upon us. My, my views, my worldview changed radically once I began to read the Bible and to study it. I began to see that my way of thinking wasn't God's way of thinking. The two were different, and guess what? God's never wrong, I am, and so therefore I needed to change my way of thinking. 
how I approach things, how I feel about things. And as you study and, and the word reveals to you the things that God wants to speak to you, then you just need to be obedient to that. In Hebrews 4.12, it tells us, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's the power of the word of God in our lives. In John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus said this as he was praying for the disciples. He said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so we hold on to these things because we know that, that we don't have to worry about whether it's right or wrong. It's all right. There's nothing in the Bible that's wrong. There's nothing in there that's going to lead you astray. Now, I can't say the same for a lot of the books and things that are out there that claim to be addition to the scripture and giving commentary. That's not always good. You have to discern it by what the word says. The word is what brings us to salvation. It is the presentation of the gospel, the very thing that Paul has said here that, that they responded to. They responded to God's word, to the gospel of Jesus Christ and gave their life to him. And that's what they're, they are standing upon. First Peter 1.23, it says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. It also causes growth in our life. Romans 10, 17, it says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So it's a natural thing that as, as we are in the word and taking in the word, that it's going to grow us spiritually. It's gonna cause us to mature in our faith. And that's why it's so critical that, that we're not just eating a small portion of it sporadically throughout the week, but that it's a constant diet within our life. You know, just as it is, I know you, you look at me and you're going to wonder when I say this, you know, if I only ate once a day, what would I look like? And you're thinking to yourself, probably a lot lighter, Bob. And that's okay because I would. But if I only ate once a week, what would I look like? I'd look emaciated. I'd look terrible. I'd look underfed. And sometimes that's what we do in our life with, our, with, the, with the Lord in our scripture is that we, we take it and we only ingest it just a little bit occasionally. And then even that, sometimes we're looking for others to spoon feed us rather than us feeding ourselves on this wonderful, wonderful gift that God has given to us. You know, the more we take in, the more we'll grow. Obviously, I'm not a bodybuilder, but I can tell you I know a little bit about it. And that's because I have known some people who actually are bodybuilders. I mean, they, this is their life. They want to they look like Arnold, but even bigger or better. And one thing I know, man, those guys eat a lot. The amount of food that a bodybuilder takes in is just overwhelming. I couldn't eat that much, even if I wanted to. 
But the point that I'm trying to make there, in order for them to, get, to bulk up and to be big and to be strong and in order to impress others with their physique, that's a requirement for them that they eat that way. In order to have the energy and the, the ability to be able to work on those muscles like that, there needs to be a source of fuel for them. Now just think of yourself, how, how big of a giant do you want to be when it comes to Christ? Well, the more you eat of this, the bigger you're going to be, the better trained you're going to be, the more mature you're going to be, the stronger you're going to be, the more equipped you're going to be when it comes time to open up your mouth to others about who Jesus is. If you remember last week when we had Brenton here that, you know, he made it very clear. This, there's a, we have an obligation to go and share the gospel with others. And we want to take in everything that we can so that when we present ourselves to others that they can see our strength is in the Lord and in his word. The word of God equips us for ministry. We know that according to 2 Timothy 3.16. It tells us all scripture is given by inspiration excuse me, of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness or excuse me, for correction and for instruction in righteousness. Also this, we, we have this confidence in the word in Isaiah 55, 11, it says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. There we have this great hope that, that there's nothing about us that that, that we cannot be a part of what God wants to do. God promises that when he sends his word out, that it accomplishes what he sets it out to do. And his word is designed to bring that correction and instruction, all that we have need of in order to have a godly lifestyle. And we see that Christians that take in the word of God will produce much fruit and in Mark's gospel, chapter four, verses three through nine, we have that passage of scripture, that section of scripture that talks about the seed and it falling upon the fertile ground. And that when it does, then what the outcome of that is, is that it produces fruit from our lives. So if we are preparing our heart, if we are allowing God's seed to fall within our heart, the natural outcome will be fruit from our lives. God surrounds us with so many illustrations in nature itself. I love peaches. That's one of my favorite pieces of fruit. And the thing that I really enjoy about a peach tree is that it doesn't have to struggle to make good peaches. It does it naturally. It, God has designed it that from the time it grows out of the ground and it starts growing up, the, the natural process will bring about a fruit that is delectable. Now, maybe you have something else you like better. Go ahead. You can daydream with that one. But here's the point. It is the natural process within the believer's life that as we take in the seed, that what will happen, it will produce fruit from our lives. And of course, the fruit is for the kingdom of God. It's not, it's not really about us at all. It's about God and his glory. 
And the fruit that he wants from us is that we in turn become that sower of seed. We cast it out upon the, the soils. And as we do, then it says that the Holy Spirit comes and works in the hearts of the lives of those people. And as he does for some of them, they too will then become those fruit bearers. Some 100, some 50, some 50, some 100 fold. That it just increases over and over. If you think about the process, how God has worked it, God started out with 12 men. And from there, millions of people have come to faith in Christ. Millions. And it primarily has been through that process of one individual sharing with another individual and that through that, that people get saved and they produce fruit. Now there are exceptions, there's exceptions in the word as well. On the day of Pentecost, there was 3,000 that got saved at one time. So I'm, I'm certainly aware of the fact that there is a place for evangelism and to that extent to where there are large crowds that hear the gospel and people respond. But most of the time, it's going to be one-on-one -on -one evangelism. Friendship evangelism, I call it. One of the reasons why I told the Lord that I didn't want to be a pastor is because I enjoyed being in the ditch. I enjoyed being with guys and working alongside them and telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ. I enjoyed that. As a pastor, I kind of got removed from that because most of the time I'm sitting in an office studying the word of God. And not out there working in a ditch, making friends and sharing the gospel with them. There's a place for both. But I have to tell you, you guys are the ones that are going to be sharing and giving that seed out to others so that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I appreciate so much when you guys tell me um, that you want me to pray for someone. As a matter of fact, Tom asked me to pray for his sister. Uh, she's in the hospital right now getting treatment. She has cancer. And, uh, and the biggest concern is she doesn't know Christ. And he asked me to pray for her. So, Lord, I do. I pray for her right now. I pray that you would save her soul. If you des desire to save her body, then praise be to your name. But her soul is what we are concerned about, Lord, in Jesus' name. It's the word of God received applied and lived by that changes our lives. D.L. Moody said the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. And I find that to be true. If I'm allowing carnality and worldliness to enter into my life, it'll keep me from the scriptures. And if I am outright sinning, it'll even be worse. It'll separate me from my relationship, my intimacy with God. And the word is designed to where it keeps me in focus and entrenched in that relationship with the Lord. The more that, that we are in the word, the more resistance we have towards sin and temptation. The less we are in the word, the less resistance we have to sin and the less we are aware of sin. And we are more apt to be tempted by it. I have to say, there's a lot of things I did in my life before I came to faith in Christ that I didn't realize was sinful behavior. Yeah, I just, I just thought it was who I was, what I was doing. It was no big deal. My favorite one to laugh about is the fact when I got saved, I thought it was okay to go ahead and continue to smoke pot. 
Matter of fact, I, I actually thought that I could sit down with a doobie and get a little stone and read the word, and it just kind of opened my mind. God's Holy Spirit didn't agree with that, and he made sure that I knew that. And it, it wasn't because I thought it was something evil. As a matter of fact, you know, I grew up as a product of the late 60s, early 70s, and so we were all doing it and didn't seem to be a problem with it. But there was, and God's word is what straightens our heart out. God's word is what, what takes us and changes us, you know? And, and a non-believing friend. As you're breaking up a pound with him and telling him about Jesus and you're smoking a doobie and he says, how can you do that? How can I do what? How can you do this and tell me about Jesus? And man, the Holy Spirit convicted me so bad at that moment. He'd been convicting me. I just wouldn't, I refused to listen. And at that moment, I said, you're absolutely right. Here, take it and go. Give me my $50. We'd split the cost. And so give me my $50 back and you can have all the profit. I don't care. God changes the heart through his word. You know, there's a lot of things in my life that I thought were okay, but God says, no, it's not so good. And, and it's because he cares about us. He wants us to change for our good and his glory. But he really does have us in mind when he says, Bob, it's not good that you smoke pot. It wasn't doing me any good. It wasn't doing my family any good. It needed to end. God knew what was best. And the word of God has in it the power to accomplish the will of God. For nothing is impossible with God, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 37. It has been, it has well been said, God's commandments are God's enablements. Jesus commanded the crippled man to stretch out his hand, the very thing the man could not do. Yet that word of command gave him the power to obey. He trusted the word, obeyed, and was made whole, according to Mark chapter 3. When we believe God's word and obey, he releases power, divine energy, that works in our lives to fulfill his purposes within our lives. God will never ask us to do anything but that he won't equip us to do it. He would not ask us to walk in righteousness and holiness without giving us the power and the ability to do so. Because it's not about us. We can do in nothing in our own strength. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We must have the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We must be connected to Jesus. And one of the ways that we're connected to Jesus is through his word. And as we are, then God enables us to do what he calls us to do. The word of God within us is a great source of power in times of testings and sufferings. This is, what, this is why Paul was so excited for them. Because it was the word of God in their time of testing that enabled them to be able to stand. You, you heard it, you took it into your heart, and it affected your life for change. Paul was excited about what was going on there. If we appreciate the word of God, that is to take it into our heart and appropriate the word of God into our mind and apply the word, that is our will to do, then the whole person will be controlled by God's word and he will give us the victory in our life. The word of God changed the lives of those of Thessalonica 
And it will do the same thing for you and I today. It's the same promise, the same God who worked effectively within the hearts and the minds of those in uh, Thessalonica, so too he will do for us. All right, verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. So those whose lives had been changed by the word of God often find themselves the object of criticism. I'm sure you probably have experienced that to some degree. I know that I did. I remember when I first got saved, my dad was pretty opposed to it. Uh, not so much that he forbid me from doing it, of course, but what my dad tell me, told me was, he said, oh, all right, if you're going to be a Christian, that's fine. Just don't be one of them radical ones. Don't go around telling everybody about Jesus all the time. Sorry, Pop, had to let you down. Immediately, I began to share the gospel with people, including him, which he, well, anyways, I don't have time for all these long stories, but anyways, my dad finally came to faith after about a year and a half after I did, and, um, and he became one of those radical Christians. He loved to tell people about Jesus once he got saved. The fact is, is that sometimes we can experience uh, criticism, persecution. Uh, we can even be cut off by our family members uh, and friends when we accept Christ as our Savior. Uh, for my benefit, the Lord made sure that most of my friends were cut off when I came to faith in Christ. They wanted nothing to do with me when they found out that I became a Christian. What a blessing that was. I had no temptation to go hang out with them anymore. They didn't want to hang out with me. And so it made my journey just that much quicker and that much easier. Some of us, sometimes that's what happens. Frequently though, when Christians suffer persecution, they are tempted to think God's blessing has departed. Paul countered this lie of Satan by reminding them that their experience duplicated that of their elder brothers and sisters in the faith who had become Christians in Judea. They also suffered opposition from their neighbors and their neighbors were Jews as well. We can expect that when we come to faith. It's not a very popular message, uh, evangel evangelistic message, to stand up there and say, I want you to come to faith in Christ and you'll be persecuted tomorrow. We leave that part out, right? We always say, come to faith in Christ in God and he will deliver you from your addictions. He'll deliver you from your sin. That is absolutely true. And that's the main point of accepting Christ is deliverance from your sin and having forgiveness. Uh, the other things are peripherals. It's not the reason to come to faith in Christ. It's not, if you're a drunk, it's not the reason to come to faith in Christ. It's, the reason is because you're a sinner and you need a savior. And when you do that, the word of God will change your heart and your mind towards those things and you'll stop doing the things that are destroying your life if you're in the word. So it's very, very practical for us in order, to, you know, for us to do that. The fact is, is that we can, with great confidence, tell people, you will suffer persecution. Paul told that to Timothy. All those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Not might, could, it was, they will. And uh, we're very blessed here in this country that we don't suffer the persecution that so many others do in other parts of the world. 
It challenges me when I think of this, to be honest with you, and I think about my own experience with Christ when I first came to faith. If, if I would have been told that I was going to suffer beatings and outcasts from my culture, society, my family, and everything else, would I have so readily said yes? Because that's exactly what was presented to the Thessalonians, and they said yes. This is what we want. We want that. It explains a lot when you see in other countries where it just, what was it, about four years ago, five years ago, where all those people were uh, lined up on a beach and beheaded. And you wonder to yourself, how in the world could they possibly do that? How, how could they take that? Well, I think that they had the message before they got saved. You will suffer persecution. And they were prepared for it. That's the biggest problem for us in the church today. We're not prepared for persecution. We're afraid of it. We do everything to avoid it. And we think that, oh, that shouldn't be that way. Walking with Christ should be much easier. Verse 16, he said, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And so here's the problem with these people who are trying to prevent them from walking with Christ. And they were also forbidding Paul and Silas and Timothy to speak to the Gentiles, to give them the word of God. And he says here that those who hinder others from coming to the Lord heap up for themselves a greater measure of the wrath of God. Uttermost means to the end of things. So in the end, they will face the wrath of God. Now, I got to tell you, I, I really uh, pray for those who hinder, and especially small children, from coming to the Lord. I believe that if, if there's not repentance there, I, I certainly wouldn't want to be them when they stand before God. God it makes it very clear that for those who would hinder children from coming to faith in Christ, that it would be better for them that they would tie a millstone around their neck and be cast into the Sea of Galilee than it would be to face the wrath of God. And these men were that. They were preventing, they were trying to keep from others the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't bad enough that they themselves were rejectors of the gospel. They wanted to make sure others did not accept it either. Boy, what a thing we see today in our culture in that regard. So many that not only do they not want uh, us to present the gospel, they want others to not even hear it. So they try to prevent the gospel from going forth as much as they possibly can. The contrast to that, of course, is this. In Hebrews 7.25, the Lord says, Therefore he, Jesus, is able, also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so in the end of all things, we will receive our salvation. That's the uttermost. That's what it means, is to come to the conclusion of it all. In verse 17, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored to more eagerly to see your face with great desire. So the word that is used here for having been taken away in the original language, it means to bereave, to, to bereave of parents. In other words, to, it's to take a child away from its mother and its father. And that's the word that Paul is using here. 
And of course, you remember earlier on in this chapter, Paul made references to his, his feelings about them when he says in verse 8, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become so dear to us. And then in verse 7, he says, but we were gentle among you, like just as a nursing mother cherishes cherishes her own children. In verse 11, he says, and as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. In verse 10 of chapter 3, it says, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. All those verses express this great love and affection that they had for them. They were like their children. They, were, they, they felt that close to them. They loved them and they wanted the best for them. And this, of course, was the concern that Paul had while he was there um, away from them. And as, as he says here, he says that they had been taken away from them, forced out. And of course, this is an answer to the critics who were saying, oh, Paul really didn't care about you. That's why he didn't stay. That's why he abandoned you so quickly. And Paul's saying, oh, no, no, we were forced out. This is my affection towards you. This is how I love you. Uh, and just as a mother and a father would never abandon their child, so it is too. That's the way that I feel about you, longing for you. Verse 18, therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan is real, but he's not omnipresent, and nor is he omnipotent. We have no reason to fear him. I, I guarantee you, you know, in Paul's day, it probably was Satan that was hindering him, that was opposing him. But I can tell you, I'm not important enough for him to spend all his energy on, my, on me. He'll send his little minion or whatever, maybe to try to disrupt my life. But, you know, I, I really, I, I, I don't really have too much time to give him credit for what goes on in my life. You see, because there's some things that are going on here that we'll see uh, that I, I think it's important that we understand that God uses the chump for his purposes in our lives, just as he did with, with uh, Paul as well. You see, Paul knew the difference when it was opposition and when it was direction. In Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 7, it says, Now when he had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them to go. So Paul was able to discern when it was Satan that was hindering them and when it was the Holy Spirit that was forbidding them. And I guess if we can do that, we can say with confidence, yeah, it's the enemy that's working in my life. But ultimately, for us in our lives, I think this is important. Either way, God uses it to accomplish his will. He did with Paul. It wasn't God's will for Paul to go to, Mr. to forgive, or excuse me, um, to Galatia. It, it wasn't God's will. And, and so the Holy Spirit stopped him. And here we see that the enemy is forbidding him from coming to see the Thessalonians. But here's what's really 
important to grasp onto. You realize that had he not been hindered, we would not have First and Second Thessalonians written out for us in order to be able to study. These are the first writings of Paul. Very critical, very important, and in, important in our lives as well. God used it to prevent Paul from going, so he was left with no recourse but to write a letter. And as that letter went out, it managed to be maintained and kept and eventually ended up into the canon of Scripture. God uses it for his glory, no matter what it is. And that's why Paul, later on in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Everything that goes on in your life, everything that goes on in my life, God will use it for good, according to the promises of Romans 8.28. It's not just my opinion, it's what the Word says. He works all things together for good to those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. All, I, I'm not a Greek scholar, I study a little bit of Greek, and all the studying I've done, I've found out that all means all. It's not rocket science. All things work together for just as it did in Paul's life as well. So it will in ours too. Now you're not gonna be writing any more epistles for the New Testament, but who knows what God would do in your life to force you to do his will and to accomplish what he wants done over your own desires even. Our job is just simply to be that, that one that's willing to do whatever the will of God is for our lives and to discern that through the Word and by His Holy Spirit as to what that is. In verse 19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? They were everything that was worth anything to Paul. They were his hope. Their development was what he lived for as a parent lives to see his children grow up to maturity, to produce and reproduce. They were his joy. They filled his life with sunshine as he thought of what they used to be, what they had become, and what they would be by the grace of God. And they were his, excuse me, his crown. They themselves were the symbol of God's blessing in his life and ministry. You know what, I can boil that down to, if you're a parent, just think of your children. Man, that, that, is, that is our crown of glory. A lifetime of investment into our children to, to produce godly offspring, sharing with them the truths of God's word. And when that happens, that is, that is our count, a crown of glory. You know, I often tell people when it comes to the death of my son that one of the things that, that brings me comfort and peace in that is that my son is in the presence of the Father. Something that, that I desired more than anything else. And, and that job has been accomplished. I don't have to worry about him or concern myself about him. It, that job is finished. He's now there. That brings great comfort to my heart. There's sorrow in the fact that he's not with me, but I'll guarantee you that day of rejoicing will come when I see him, when I see him in the presence of Almighty God, I will rejoice. 
And perhaps it is that you have spiritual children in your life, friends, family members that you've invested your time into, that you've taken, invested the word of God into their lives. And you see, you see the fruit, you see the produce that is there. You get an understanding of why Paul would mention this. You are our hope. You are our crown. You are our glory. You following after the Lord in the midst of this great trial and tribulation and persecution. Man, this is astounding. We are overjoyed in what is going on in your life. So too in our lives. When it comes to those who are around us, whether it's children or whether it's, you know, those that, um, that we've invested in in friendships and love. In verse 20, he says, for you are our glory and joy. So Paul said in essence, when life is over and we stand in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, you Thessalonians will be our source of glory and joy. And you means that, that you mean that much to us. That's what he's saying. So too for us. How does all that take place? To be honest with you, it's necessary that we continue to mature in our faith in the Lord. Because the call is, is that when we get saved, we become a disciple of Christ. And then after we have become a disciple of Christ, then we in turn take and we share our faith with others. They become Christians. And when they do, then we disciple them. You see, it's not just going out and sharing the gospel. Is sharing the gospel, and when people come in, then there's discipleship. And as we pour our lives and, and our hearts and the ministry of, of Christ into people's lives, then they too become that which we are so affectionate toward. And it all starts with our salvation and our embracing the Word of God, taking it in and growing and being a part of what God wants to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for it truly is a blessing to our hearts and our life. It instructs us in the way that we should go. It is a, truly a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for all that you have done for us, Lord. You are so gracious, so kind to us. And Lord, with, with all that you have done, we come to this place where we're going to celebrate the table. A remembrance, Lord, of who you are and what you have done. It is giving glory to you. It is recognizing your faithfulness. And Lord, we have much to be thankful for in this. Lord, speak to our hearts. Cleanse us from within, Lord. Purify us. Lord, if there's something between you and us, Lord, reveal it to us that we might confess and repent of that today. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy, the opportunity to come at will, Lord, to confess, to repent, to be cleansed, to be purified, to rejoice and to celebrate. And so, Lord, work effectively in us in that way, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.